Father God, uh, we grieve with many in our community and even across our state with the loss of four lives, the terrible impact, the grieving impact that will have for years to come. We ask for a special measure of your peace and your strength, especially for family members and close friends. We ask for healing for our community and we ask for protection for both civilians and our first responders who are often in situations of danger. We ask, Father, that you would bring a measure of strength and grace that previously has not been felt to those who are grieving. Father, we also pray for elections on Tuesday, that you would guide them, local and state and school elections, that those women and men that you desire to be in positions of authority would be raised up and that you would guide them. And Father, we ask that you would guide us this morning as we look at Luke 16, 19 to 31. Allow our time to be well spent. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. William Harding was our president in 1923 when he suddenly passed away, very unexpectedly, as you recall. And the vice president, Calvin Coolidge, became president. Now, if you know anything about Calvin Coolidge, you know that he was called Silent Cow because he was a man of very few words. As the vice president, before becoming our president, he presided, as all vice presidents do, over the Senate. And as the presiding vice president, he very rarely said anything. In fact, most often I read that he would sit in his chair and read a book during the dialogue going on on the Senate floor. On one particular occasion, two senators of opposing parties were not getting along. Imagine that. And one of them said to the other, go to hell. Well, this was 1923. That was not something that was normally found in the halls of Washington. So the offended senator turned to Calvin Coolidge, who was the presiding judge, and said, what are you going to do about that? Calvin looked up from his book. He said, well, I've been reading the rule book. It says you don't have to go. (laughs) I suppose that's probably true, but it underestimates the horror of a literal eternal place called hell. As I thought about that topic, because our text today touches on it, I thought about a woman who recently came to Christ. She was on a plane and she was reading her Bible. She was sitting next to a man that was educated beyond his intelligence level. Have you ever known someone like that? And this particular man was appalled that anyone would spend time reading the Bible. And so he mocked her and said, you're not really wasting your time reading that. 
And she said, yes, it's very valuable. He said, well, you don't believe anything in it, do you? She said, yes, I believe all of it. Well, do you believe that account of Jonah being swallowed by a fish? Yes, she said, I believe that. Well, how did it happen? Explain it to me. She said, I really don't know. But when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah all about it. And the man responded and said, well, what happens if Jonah doesn't go to heaven? He goes down there instead. And she said, well, then you ask him for us. <laughs> Again, I made light of a, a difficult topic. That's the light part of the heavy part of our sermon. The rest is rather heavy because if hell is real and the Bible affirms it, if it's eternal and the Bible affirms it, it's a, it's a separation from God forever and the Bible affirms it, then you and I ought to tech, connect, grow, go seriously and go with the gospel because we want to make hell as empty as we possibly can. With this introduction, I want to pick up in Luke chapter 16. We're going to read verses 19 all the way to 31. There was a rich man, as you'll see on the text above, that's the Latin dives. We have the Latin translation of Jerome from 384 to 404. And so because the Latin word for rich man is dives, some have called him, nicknamed him, Mr. Dives. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water. Cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses, they have the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, before you and I delve into the text, allow me to modernize it, to bring it into the 21st century. I picture a very rich man. He lives in the North Shore of Chicago. He lives on Sheridan Avenue. 
He sits in the back of one of several stretch limos that he owns. He wears Westcott suits, about $75,000 a suit. He drives or wears uh, these suits along with a pen that is a, a grapple pen, about $78,000. His watch is a Rolex Pearlmaster, about $282,000. By the way, in case you're wondering, we took these pictures from Pastor Dan's private collection. <laughs> He's a powerful man. He lives in the North Shore. He oversees a sea of employees. His office is a penthouse high above the city. He has a bonus every year that could fund a small nation or two. He's got the world by the tail. He's a powerful man. He's a rich man. And every day, according to him, his eyes are assaulted as he pulls out in the stretch limo sitting in the back. He goes outside of his gated house and there he has to see, he has to be assaulted by the figure of Lazarus who has been laid there, a handicapped man. His purebred dogs, Dobermans, papered, come out and lick the lesions on this Lazarus's body, yuck. Apparently the Dobermans feel like, you know, there's nothing about him that's dangerous. But that's the only kindness that he will ever receive. He longs. He longs to eat the food that is from the rich man's table that has been thrown to the floor, but nobody will give him a thing. The rich man, Mr. Dives, has been rather clear to his servants. Under no condition are you ever to give that freeloader who lives on the dole of the nation to give him any food. We don't want to give him any reason to be dropped off outside my property. And time goes on. Lazarus dies. Maybe he dies from being exposed to the elements. Maybe he dies because tragically... Few care for a homeless man like this. Maybe he dies and nobody even notices. Maybe he dies from his wounds and he lacks medical attention. He dies and he goes into the presence of God because he has faith in a redeemer. He may be a handicapped man. He may be a homeless man. He may be a poor man, but he has prepared his heart for the future the last times, the eschaton, the future days, and he has believed in Christ as Savior. About the same time, Mr. Dives also dies. Maybe he has a heart attack or a stroke, maybe an aneurysm. We're not sure what happens to him, but he also dies. Now understand what likely happens to the two men the text doesn't necessarily tell us, but I'm speculating that Lazarus is taken to the Valley of Hanon. He's taken to the place known as Gehenna. He's taken to the wall of Jerusalem where you throw the refuse over and several servants, several slaves have the job of lighting all of the trash on fire so that the flame dieth not. It became known as a visible symbol of hell. And I picture that the rich man, Mr. Dives, he probably has an elaborate ceremony. 
Maybe several people offer some lies in a eulogy. Maybe he's placed in a fine chrysophagus, or, or maybe he is, is placed in a mausoleum. Maybe he's buried on Mount Olive where the rich people of his day might have been buried. Well, back to the text. In verse 19, you and I are introduced to a rich man. We're told that he wears purple. He wears fine linen. He eats sumptuously. He's a wealthy man. He's a tycoon. In contrast, Lazarus is homeless and handicapped. He's literally laid at the gate of the rich man. And again, the text says he longs to eat of the food from the rich man's table. Ah, table scraps. My dog enjoys them as well. But it's more than that. There's more actually going on in the text than meets the eye. You see, in the first century, they didn't have forks, spoons, and knives. In fact, generally you would eat, you would take a, a piece of thin bread and you would put it around your hand and you would use your hand with the bread as the utensil. If you bothered to wash, it was ceremonial cleansings. It wasn't to wash off the germs. In fact, most people ate with dirty hands, and so they protected their dirty hands with this piece of bread, and they would reach down, and they would eat, and it would get saliva on it, and little pieces of, of food, and on the backside would be all the germs and the dirt from their hand. And when they were done, they would take it, and they would throw it down to feed it to the animals. And that's what Lazarus longs to eat. I saw this once. I was at Mount Gerizim, 27 miles north of Jerusalem. As you know, Mount Gerizim is the home of the Samaritans. In Jesus' time, about a half a million today. About 650 left on the face of the earth. 90% still live on Mount Gerizim. And these Samaritans, who are they? When did they come into existence? Well, you remember that the Assyrian king Sargon ransacked the ten northern tribes in 722 B.C. And many Jews intermarried with the occupying Assyrians. And half Jew, half Assyrian became Samaritan. And that was essentially the end of the ten northern tribes. And you remember that the Samaritans and the Jews didn't and still do not get along. And the Samaritans set up a rival temple on Mount Gerizim, a temple that was destroyed by the Jews in 120 B.C. And you remember that the Samaritans rejected all but the first five books of Scripture because the later books all talk about the temple in Jerusalem and they could not have that. And in Mount Gerizim, they would, they would worship not the one true living God. Well, I was in Gerizim a, a number of years ago with a group, and we went and ate at a Samaritan establishment. It was a family-run place, and they didn't serve us forks, spoons, and knives, but they gave us a little piece of bread, a little piece of pita bread, and, and I watched with with a little bit of delight mixed with, uh, oh, I, I thought it was humorous. Because all of my group ate their forks. Because that little piece of bread 
was to serve themselves. And then there were dogs around. They were supposed to throw it on the ground, but they all ate their forks. I guess no harm, no foul. Well, it's the fork that we have Lazarus longing to eat, but nobody gives him a crumb. Verse 22 tells us that Lazarus then dies, but again, there's no mention of a burial, no mention of a sarcophagus, a mausoleum. He's probably thrown over to the valley of the known. Notice the name. He's called Lazarus. If you have time this week, read all of the parables of Jesus. And you're going to notice something that's very interesting. Jesus never names anyone in any of his parables except here. This is the only named individual in any of Jesus' parables. Parables are made up stories. He doesn't need to name the characters. But Lazarus means God is my helper. And you remember what we read in John chapter 10. The good shepherd calls his sheep by name. And so he's calling Lazarus by name because Lazarus, although he had a difficult life, he prepared for the life hereafter. He prepared his soul. He believed in Christ. He accepted the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as a sole payment, the atonement of his sin. God is indeed his helper. And so he ascends to Abraham's bosom. Now, Abraham's bosom may not be a term that we're very familiar with. It's predominantly an Old Testament term. You remember in John chapter 14, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again so that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way. And Jesus was talking about preparing the place called heaven. In other words, heaven, as we know heaven, is a New Testament creation after the ascension of Christ. Prior to that, the redeemed who looked forward and placed their faith in the coming Redeemer were placed in Abraham's bosom until heaven was created, and then they were transferred from Abraham's bosom into heaven. And so this man who is looking forward to the atoning sacrifice of the Redeemer, dies and goes into Abraham's bosom, the precursor of heaven, because he has placed his faith in Christ. That's why he goes. In contrast, the rich man who does not prepare his heart gets the fulfillment of his heart in eternity. He wanted nothing to do with God, and God granted that, not only temporally, but eternally. And so God, always the gentleman, allowed him to spend eternity separated from God in a literal eternal place called hell. Now at this point, some might say, well, that might be fair in the United States. After all, we do have Christian radio. We do have a church on every other street corner. We do have Bibles in almost every bookstore and Walmart. You can hear the gospel in multiple settings. But what about the individual in a country that has closed access? What about the individual 
in an area where they don't have access to the gospel on a regular basis, what about them? And Scripture answers the question. It reminds us in Psalm 8 and in Romans 1 that the Creator created creation in such a way that unless we suppress the truth, which we do, it will point us to the one true Creator. And therefore, Paul tells us in Romans 1, we are without excuse. Romans 3 tells us that the law of God is written on the heart of every human. The law of God being the Ten Commandments. The first two commandments are forbidding us against idolatry and worshiping anyone but the one true God. That is written on the heart of every human that has ever existed according to Romans 3. We also see in passages like Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, and Acts 10, Cornelius, that when some truly seek after God, God sends someone or sends a message in some way, in this case Philip and Peter, that they may hear the gospel and believe in Christ. I think of a man named Dr. David Garrison of the University of Chicago who wrote the book, A Fresh Wind in the House of Islam. And if you read the book, it is very heavily footnoted. It's written in popular form, but clearly an academic treatise in which he demonstrates multiple millions upon millions of Muslims the world over in the last few years who have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he talks about individuals who long to know God and the Lord is giving them visions and dreams or sending missionaries from far off lands that they may hear the name of Christ and hear the salvation, the atonement of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and multiple millions are coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus the world over. And so, God is making a way for those who truly seek after him. I think of Bala. Some of you recognize Bala as one of our missionaries. He and his wife are from Indonesia and Malaysia, two of the most Muslim countries of the world. That is their place of origin. And they go back there regularly to preach about Christ. And in his last newsletter, he wrote about a man who was turned off from Islam because of ISIS and sought after the one true God. He wrote about several brothers who walked into a mosque and heard an imam say that unless you pray five times a day at the proper time, you will not go to heaven. And they were turned off. And he talked about how these men, known to Bala, how they sought the one true God and through the internet came to the gospel and came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. God is on the move. And when individuals truly seek after God, he makes himself available and the gospel known to them. And yet, many want to blame God for those who do not believe we see that in the text in verses 28 and 29. 
We could read the text one of two ways. I don't think we would be correct if we read the text as a brother who's concerned for five other brothers. And he says to Father Abraham, send somebody from the dead. Send Lazarus back from the dead. Then my brothers will believe and they will not come to this place of torment. My concern is for my brothers. I don't think that's the right way to read the text. I think verses 28 and 29 are an accusation against God. I think the rich man is essentially saying, you're the reason I'm here. If you had sent someone back from the dead, if you had given me a chance, if you had given me more information, I wouldn't be here, so you owe it to them at least to do what you didn't do for me. It's Dr. John Hanna, professor at Dallas Seminary and an eminent historian who made this statement. No one who gets to hell will be able to say to God, you unfairly sent me here. And no one who gets to heaven will be able to say to oneself, I'm here because of myself. He's right on both accounts. We need to understand that those who go to hell do so because they ignore the truth of the incarnation. They ignore the creation of the Creator. They ignore the law of God written on one's heart. They have not sought after God. And if they did, we have evidence, historical and biblical, that God would make Himself known. My friends, there are no second chances. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed under man to die once. And after that, the judgment. Verse 26 says, there is a great gulf set so that nobody can go from there to here or here to there. And yet we teach such things in modernity and post-modernity. We say things like purgatory must exist going back to the Middle Ages and earlier than that a place not spoken of in Scripture where somebody would have a second chance to earn their way out of hell into heaven. And in the Middle Ages, we're told it's an average of about 1,902,202 years. But purgatory isn't mentioned in Scripture. Some would talk about annihilationism. And they'd say, well, the unredeemed will be destroyed. And yet that's also not what Scripture says. Some will talk about universalism. Love will win out. Or love will win a popular book with very bad theology. Saying that God will make a way for everyone. Well, he's offered a way for everyone. But that's now, not after death. You and I are coming up to the resurrection season. In two weeks, we will celebrate Resurrection Sunday. It is the best attended Sunday of the year. It is the time when those who have not thought much about God will think about God. And those who 
do not normally go to church might consider it. And so part of our Connect, Grow, Go is the opportunity we have to invite people to come to church. And so it was mentioned earlier, but we have two things. We have a little egg, and inside this egg is candy. And if you have a magnifying glass, <laughs> the times of all of our services. And you can hand them an egg. You can get it at the connection point. You can egg somebody for Jesus. Or you can get some of these bookmarks. He has risen with all of our service times on it for Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday of all three campuses. And you can hand that out. Because one of the desires of our heart is to make heaven as expansive as possible and hell as small as possible and to tell people of the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so our goal is truly to see people come to know Jesus and to grow up in Jesus, to grow up in Christ. We have the opportunity to participate in that over the next couple weeks. Let's pray. Father God, uh, the parable is hard, it's stark, it's shocking. We don't like to talk about a place of torment that's eternal, separated from you for those who do not embrace your Son. And yet if the Bible is true, and I believe it with all of my being, then both heaven and hell are true. Father, if there's someone here today that does not know your Son, we ask that you might give them faith that they might believe in Jesus and accept what he did on the cross, him dying as the payment of our sin, him rising as the first fruits of resurrection, and him graciously offering, your son graciously offering eternal life to all who believe and receive him, the Savior and in the power of your Spirit as Lord. And Father, may we have the opportunity to invite several to a resurrection services where they'll hear the gospel. And may you move mightily in the souls. And may they hear and may they believe and receive your Son as Savior. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.